Welcome to From the View Box with Hal and Chris. This is the podcast of the UMass Medical School Department of Radiology. My name is Hal Lowe from the Division of Emergency Radiology. And I am Christopher Cernelia from Musculoskeletal Imaging. We will continue where we left off with our discussion with Dr. Mark Masciocci on hepatocellular carcinoma treatment and transplantation. In this episode, we will include living donors, and Dr. Masciocci will provide pitfalls and pearls. For, for those who are uh, new to the topic, uh, just a, uh, you mentioned a couple, a couple of acronyms here, um, OPTN and UNOS. Um, just for everybody out there who may not know, OPTN stands for Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network, and UNOS is the United Network for Organ Sharing, so, uh, which is administered by the uh, Department of Health and Human Services. So those are obviously two large players um, in this uh, liver transplantation network and uh, protocols and, and policies nationwide. Um, now, more specifically about um, living donor liver transplantation, which is kind of uh, interesting and was a hot topic, uh, now it's more common. What, um, can you tell us what, what is special about living donor uh, liver transplantation as opposed to cadaveric uh, liver transplantation? Yes, there's a, a number of uh, really important and often interesting distinctions between the two. The basis of why we allow people to donate you know, part of the liver is really stems from what I was uh, mentioning earlier about this being a limited resource. We just don't have enough livers for all the people out there who need a new liver. And so if living people can donate them the same way that people can donate a kidney, well, that, that uh, creates a, a, a much bigger uh, supply of uh, life-saving, you know, um, transplants. So liver transplantations with, from a living donor, um, the first thing to consider is just, you know, who's going to do it? Well, you know, generally it's from somebody you know. It doesn't have to be a family member, but somebody who wants to donate to you. There is such a thing as good Samaritan transplantations. We don't currently have that uh, here. I, I believe in some other countries they do that. Um, but right now, it, you know, it could be, you know, your neighbor, your friend, a coworker, you know, your child, um, sometimes like, an, you know, a niece or nephew, you name it. Um, but somebody who basically wants to step forward and do that. And so then the next challenge becomes screening uh, those potential living donors. Because if you're going to donate half your liver, you better be in extremely good health. And pretty much, we'll, you know, we'll, we, we really... Uh, examine those patients from head to toe all around, you know, um, so they will get imaging to look at their uh, anatomy, which, you know, we can talk at, uh, talk about in a few moments. Um, but also we're going to be looking at, you know, uh, you know, what their, you know, their socioeconomic status is, they're going to have a psychiatric evaluation, all of these things to sort of make sure that they're the right person who can then go through this whole process of, you know, having part of their liver removed. Um, the liver regenerates. And so, those patients will be, you know, followed up, you know, in a year later, and you will see that regeneration of the liver. Um, so they can do, you know, they should, you know, they will should be healthy, you know, for the rest of their lives. But the the reason why it's so important to screen these patients is because the death of a living donor is essentially a catastrophe. Um, it's it can shut the whole program down, because in that case now, a, you know, a very healthy person has died you know, in the process of trying to donate their liver. And so that's just something that, you know, we just can't have happen. And so that's why, 
you know, we really do, um, you know, look at these patients very closely. The other reason why it can be, uh, the other distinction, I think, is just about when you get a transplant, because, you know, if you're waiting for a liver transplant, you're basically waiting for a call, um, and it's, you know, whatever they have available. Whereas this, you know, if you do have this arrangement, if you do have somebody who's going to be your living donor, you know, it, it's basically at a pre, uh, predetermined date of the surgery, you know, where, you know, both patients will come in, you know, and, and they'll, they'll do the whole transplant uh, procedure. Um, so sometimes, you know, just sort of, um, you know, that, uh, that different, that's a much different uh, kind of scenario that the, uh, uh, the uh, recipient is going through. Great. So, yeah, so it sounds like, yes, the, the living donor is, is, is certainly more complicated and there are, of course, more considerations to think about before performing a living donor uh, transplantation. Um, so let's play a hypothetical here. Say I have a family member who has HCC, needs a liver transplantation, and I'm willing to donate uh, my liver, uh, a part of my, part of my liver uh, to my relative. Um, radiographically speaking, radiologically speaking, I'm going to undergo some radiologic uh, sort of test for to, to look at my anatomy and physiology. What uh, what are the potential reasons on radiology why I that would preclude me from becoming a donor uh, to my relative? Great question. So that's, and that's uh, a really important one that we're involved in. It's not the most common reason people, you know, um, you know, are, are, are excluded. It's kind of more in the single digits. There's, there's more common causes. But from our standpoint, what we say can exclude somebody because of certain anatomic variations that we find. That's one of the big things. Uh, obviously, find that, you know, incidentally, you have a cancer that you didn't know about. Well, you know, that's, that's going to, you know, be a more important thing to address uh, and you won't be a good candidate. So when you come in to get the evaluation, you're going to get a scan of your chest, abdomen, and pelvis with a CT, and you're also going to get an MRI, and you're also going to get a liver biopsy. So to start with the CT, the CT is really the best way to look at the blood vessels because it has better spatial resolution. You know, a lot of our clinicians think that, you know, MRI is just, you know, the next step for everything, you know, that it's superior to CT in all aspects, but it's not, especially not when it comes to spatial resolution. If you want to look at blood vessels, CT is your friend. So we're going to look at the arteries, the veins, and the portal vein, uh, hepatic veins and the uh, portal veins individually and report on those. So the hepatic artery, ideally, and most patients are donating their right lobe because the right lobe is bigger. Uh, we're going to be looking for their blood supply to uh, different segments, particularly segment four. So the left lobe and the right lobe are divided into segments, you know, one through eight, so basically one through four are the left lobe and five through eight are the right lobe. So four is going to stay with the donor. So you don't want to damage four. And four is right up against that, you know, transection line that they're going to go right through the liver from the IVC to the gallbladder fossa. And so you don't want to disturb that arterial blood flow. And so if the blood flow to segment four is coming from the right hepatic artery somewhere, you know, more peripherally, you could potentially, you know, cut all those arteries and then the patient, the donor, could come back a year later and have ischemic cholangiopathy. They could have a bunch of bile structures, you know, things like that, really bad stuff. So that's probably the biggest thing that we care about with the hepatic artery. Pretty much everything else after that is, you know, it isn't really a, a big deal. With the portal veins, it really gets down to, you know, how many cuts they're going to need to make. So 
Ideally, you'd have a nice long right portal vein before it divides into an anterior and posterior division. They can cut one simply. It becomes a problem though, if you know, you're one of those people who has an anatomic variation, particularly where you have you know, basically two branches you know, to the right lobe, like the main portal vein gives off one to the right portal vein and then keeps going and divides into the left and the right anterior portal vein. Well, now you have two veins that you need to anastomose one way or another, and there's different ways to do it. Uh, that also becomes an issue because um, those two veins and the, uh, the liver parenchyma around them and the right anterior and right posterior vein basically are sort of holding the, the whole angle of the portal vein as it goes through the liver in place. And so potentially if they have the wrong orientation, the portal vein could collapse, you know, once you remove those veins and the patient could have a, a portal vein thrombosis. So sometimes when the patient has kind of an acute angulation, which, you know, is subjective, but something that we look at with our 3D reconstructions with the surgeon um, can be important and exclude the patient because they can, you know, see that, the, that uh, this is somebody who'd be at risk for having, you know, that, that type of collapse, you know, where the surgeon might even have to, you know, create a new anastomosis in the donor of their portal veins. Uh, so that's a big deal there. Now with the hepatic veins, that's also really important too, because, you know, with segments, uh, you know, as I, as I identified them, you know, it's never sort of a perfect division of where they get their blood supply in terms of which, which branches. So the middle hepatic vein, which they're going to be transecting just to the right of it. So the middle hepatic vein itself stays with the donor. That means they're cutting up all the branches that go from the middle hepatic vein typically into segments five and eight, which are on the right lobe. So that's really important because if you have big veins coming off of the middle hepatic vein draining uh, segments five and eight and you cut them, well, now you're going to get vascular congestion and you might get you know, an infarction or something like that in the, uh, in the donated right lobe. So they have to reconstruct those, which means ahead of time. Uh, so that means that they want to know about those ahead of time as well. You know, we often hear about having an accessory right hepatic vein being important. Well, it is if it's big enough. They just make an extra anastomosis with that as well in the recipient. But um, the middle hepatic vein can kind of be more of a big deal because it, it can uh, create a more challenging um, surgery because of that alternative uh, drainage um, and variation that you have between uh, those, those segments five and eight, which are in the anterior part of the right lobe. And then lastly, with bile ducts, which that is MRI is better for, um, you know, we care about their anatomy, particularly um, how many anastomoses they're going to have to create with that as well. So there's a common variation where a person's right posterior hepatic duct empties into the left hepatic duct. And meanwhile, the right, right anterior, you know, comes down at the typical place of the confluence. So that means they're going to have to cut twice there and create two biliary anastomosis. And that's not necessarily the end of the world, but again, it makes things more challenging. And subjectively, if you start to add up some of these things, even if nothing really is, you know, an absolute, you know, contraindication, they may say, the smart surgeon may say, well, you know, this person probably isn't, you know, the best candidate if it's going to be this challenging of a surgery. So then the question becomes, why not the left lobe? And so that began that, brings up some interesting questions. So for starters, um, the left lobe is smaller. And that's really important because, you know, the other thing that I didn't mention is volumetric analysis is what we do with the CT. How big is your right lobe? How big is your left lobe? And how big is your whole liver? 
and how does that all factor in when you compare yourself to the patient? So in a perfect world, you know, you would be eight feet tall, your recipient would be four feet tall, you know, you'd have a huge, you know, liver and you could, you know, donate uh, your, you know, left lobe easily and that would be more than enough for that small person. But often that isn't the case. Like say, you know, you're kind of a, a smaller individual and, you know, you're, you're donating to somebody who's a lot bigger, um, then it may not be enough because, you know, you donate your left lobe of the liver and then it, the patient still decompensates uh, after having uh, the transplant. Um, so, you know, it becomes a tenuous topic. And so that's where this term comes up of graph recipient weight ratio. It's not something that we need to calculate, but it's what they're using our volumetric analysis for. So often the other, uh, not often, but uh, one of the other common reasons somebody might be excluded is because their left lobe is not big enough, like percentage wise. So we compare the, those two values and how much uh, percentage wise they make of the total volume. If the left lobe of the liver makes up less than 30%, they shouldn't uh, uh, donate their right lobe because then in that case, they're not left over with enough liver for themselves. Uh, and then the, uh, the uh, donor can get into hepatic decompensation. So um, that's why ideally you'd have, um, you know, uh, not somebody, you know, classically, for example, with like a right lobe who has like a really long, big right lobe and then a kind of a very small, you know, left lobe uh, in comparison. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's an interesting topic as well. And, and, you know, we do do those occasionally, but they're just nowhere near as common as um, right lobe donations because, you know, our, our patients aren't necessarily small people uh, to begin with the recipients. That's great, Mark. Although I will say that I think you just traumatized me there a little bit. And it was bringing back some flashbacks to when I was a resident and uh, had, to, had to do some volumetric measures on the, uh, on the magnet. Um, it was a little, bit, a little bit ago, so we didn't have the same uh, abilities as we do today. So we would have to go through slice by slice to measure, and that was the, the resident's responsibility. So, so that does bring back some, some memories. Um, I, I think the information you provided was really great. Um, I think I just we'd like to ask our, all of our um, guests um, to kind of finish out with, you know, maybe some some pearls and pitfalls. So do you have any um, common pitfalls that you've seen in some of the junior residents as they begin to get into, you know, transplant imaging um, or any pearls you want to provide other trainees who may not have that experience that come from a program that doesn't have, you know, transplantation? Sure. Uh, I think there's uh, a couple that I can give. Uh, really thinking more of the acute setting, um, you know, where say you're on call and you have to kind of make a, a quick judgment. Um, one of the misconceptions I see about uh, transplant ultrasound is what resistive indexes mean. And what that is, is that's, you know, basically the uh, ratio of um, the, uh, you know, the, the peak systolic flow from, you know, the uh, sort of level of diastolic flow. Uh, a lot of times people see these elevated resistive indexes, you know, high resistance vessels, you know, of like greater than 0.8 and, um, you know, get concerned about that. But it's actually pretty common after a transplant because, you know, as I was talking about earlier, you know, it, the, the body is basically readjusting to all that and opening up those blood vessels after the anastomosis. It's usually not a, that big of a deal and it often normalizes. And even if it does, uh, the patient's um, clinical status may be pretty good. What's far more ominous is if the resistive indices are actually too low. So when you get less than 0.5, well, what that means is you have a lot of um, diastolic flow in comparison to your systolic flow. 
what does that mean? That means you've dilated a lot of your arteries inside of the transplant. Why are you dilating the arteries inside of your transplant? Well, it could be because you have a stenosis farther, um, you know, proximally, or a thrombosis, you know, perhaps like a non-inclusive thrombus, or um, you know, you're getting it from collaterals. Basically, the liver is, you know, demanding more blood flow. It's not getting enough oxygen, so that's why those blood vessels are dilating. So that's why a low resistive index is a bad sign, and something that you really want to watch for not necessarily a high resistance, uh, resistance vessel. Um, that's probably the biggest thing for ultrasound. For CT, uh, another thing that happens, I think this is uh, even more um, useful, is uh, a lot of times, you know, patients, you know, after their transplant, maybe they've got a fever, maybe they're worried about sepsis or something like that, and they're looking for a source. And we do, you know, a CT or an ultrasound or something like that. And, you know, the clinicians know that often, you know, you'll get like little hematomas or little seromas, maybe around the liver, or maybe particularly around the right lobe and the hepatorenal recess. But this other kind of funny collection often tends to occur in the falciform ligament where it, all, it basically kind of splays out uh, the um, divisions of the left lobe. And it looks like a collection. And the next thing you know, the clinicians want to start, you know, asking IR to stick a needle in it, which, you know, Basically, that's not really necessary. That's just a common type of just postoperative collection that occurs. It's not an abscess in my experience. Um, so that's something that you kind of want to just sort of tiptoe away from, you know, uh, creating concern for as a source, or even if they're not looking for a source to say that that could be a collection or an, uh, specifically an abscess. So those are two, I think, useful pearls uh, to know. That's great, Mark. Uh, a lot of really great information. I think hopefully the... Uh the residents and other trainees will really benefit from that uh, introduction to uh, HEC um, treatment and transplantation. Uh, I want to thank you uh, for coming on. It was really uh, um, wonderful talking to you. I hope to, to see you uh, live soon. <laughs> we haven't gotten to see each other recently, but uh, it's been wonderful talking to you. You as well. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. And that concludes today's episode. Thank you for listening and supporting From the Viewbox. We've attached additional reading materials to the episode notes as provided by our guest. And please visit us at www.umassmed.edu backslash radiology. Thank you to our colleagues Charlene Barron, Tom Delaney, and Dan Ramsaran for their technical assistance. See you next time.